uh, two more weeks in 2 Timothy. Uh, this book has definitely taken longer than I thought it would. I keep slowing down, and, um, but that's good. It's good to slow down with the Word, and we'll be here today and then next week, and then we'll wrap it up just in time for Advent, uh, a series in Isaiah that we'll be starting just in a couple of weeks. But today, we enter into the last section of 2 Timothy, chapter 4. There's a guy named Frederick Langbridge who, who wrote um, a little book, a book of poetry. It's kind of in rhyming verse, a little story in the late 1800s, and uh, it has a great name. It's called uh, A Cluster of Quiet Thoughts, which I wish they wrote uh, book titles like that anymore. It's, it's amazing. A Cluster of Quiet Thoughts. I haven't read it. It's actually impossible to find. Um, but I remember coming across two of the more famous lines in this work, and these are the ones that have kind of survived and you can find online. And in the poem, there's two men uh, who are in prison, and just as the story goes, and then he, he has this rhyming couplet that he used to describe that's become famous. He says, two men looked through the bars, one saw mud, the other the stars. Two men, both in prison, both looking through the bars, looking at the same predicament. And even though they're in the same predicament, one is clearly looking down and the other is clearly looking up, maybe through a window or something. There's a different perspective, even though they're in the same predicament. And so as we enter into this last section of 2 Timothy, this is kind of the sad section. Uh, some would say it's very negative. Um, Paul here thinking about his own mortality, thinking about his disappointment, his abandonment from his friends, He's been in prison this whole time, probably the Mamertine prison, which is a famous prison that's underground, so even though he wasn't technically looking through the bars, he was more like underground, he had this one window up at the top of his cell where he could see outside, if that is in fact the prison where he was, which most scholars think it was. And here's a man who is abandoned. Cold, we know he's cold because in the next section he's going to ask for a cloak. And he's dying. He knows this will be his last stop. He is a man who is looking through the bars. And as we read just these three verses today, ask yourself is, is he looking at the mud or is he looking at the stars as he looks through? these bars of his last few days of his life. Let's read in verse 6 of chapter 4. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, 
the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. So I find in Paul's note here, it's, it's dripping with a, with a couple of different things. It's a sadness, but it's a sadness, again, mixed with, with a kind of strength. Clearly, Paul here knows that he's gone through a hard time. It's someone very familiar with life's disappointments, very knowledgeable that he is about to pass from this life. But that sadness is mixed with a kind of strength, which we might, might call resiliency. Paul is resilient at the end. And today, I want us to look at how he is resilient even in death. And next week, as we close off the series, we'll see that he is resilient in his disappointments, which I think is instructive for us. All of it is instructive for us because all of us are people who look at life through the bars. Maybe we don't feel that way. Maybe we didn't come in this morning weighed down heavily, even though I'm guessing some of you did. But all of us, when we're actually aware of what our lives are, we're, we're looking through all of these disappointments, all of these regrets, these hard realities, and all of us at some time or another, some more often than others, are facing our own deaths. We're going to be talking about that today. I know it's Fall Fest today, so it's a little sad to talk about death on Fall Fest Day, um, but here's where we find ourselves in the text, so that's where we're going to go. We're going to talk about how Paul instructs us in this idea of death. Here's what I want us to see. Rather than avoiding it, the Christian acknowledges the reality of death as an opportunity to submit their past, their present, and the future to God's purposes. Rather than avoiding it, the Christian acknowledges the reality of death. We live with the reality of death, and we see it as an opportunity to submit our past, present, and future to God's purposes. We don't avoid it, but there is a temptation, isn't there, to avoid thinking about death. Again, hate to do it on Fall Fest Day, but what I want to do today, I think is very important for the church to do. And what it has done in the past, what it has, one, one of the church's responsibilities is to offer what has been called an ars moriendi, the art of dying well. Recognizing that all of us are people who look through the bars, all of us have hard realities, and all of us, it's appointed for everyone, wants to die. And after that, the judgment, the scripture says. And we have separated ourselves more so than other generations of the church from the reality of death. Historically, people have been much closer, that being in their minds. Obviously, everyone has still died from previous generations, but it's been more of a thing. But as mortality rates have decreased, as infant deaths have decreased, as we become more efficient in the medical world, we, perhaps more than any other generation, have distanced our, ourselves from the idea of death, even though it comes for all of us. When I first moved here eight years ago, 
uh, one of the first things I was struck by, I was out on a bike ride with a friend, and this was out in the East Valley. We were living out in Chandler at the time, and um, we went on a bike ride around the canal paths, and we were walking around Phoenix. The person was introducing me to different parts of Phoenix, so we're going on an extended bike ride, and he was showing me things. I'd been there for maybe a couple, been here for a couple of months, and somehow the, the conversation turned to talk about death and um, those realities, and I, it kind of struck in my head, and I thought, and so I said out loud, you know, one of the things that I, have, I haven't noticed here is, where are all the graveyards? Where are the cemeteries? I grew up in the South and the Midwest, and so used to seeing churches with a bunch of gravestones out to one side, right? We got the land over here. Maybe that's Able Project, phase, phase five, um, <laughs> the cemetery. <laughs> Where are they? And he said, oh, they're here, but we hide them. We hide them. And I have seen a few since, by the way. Phoenix being one of the most planned cities in America, it is evident perhaps that we have not planned for death. We're not reminded of it very often. We don't have a lot of visible reminders. And Paul puts this into our face, the reality of his own mortality, so that he can instruct us as he looks through the bars of his life. He zooms out and he gives us what, how he's processing it. And in that, he gives us his ars moriendi. This is how you die well. This is how in the present moment... You prepare yourself for the reality that comes to us all. There's three verses here. They're very straightforward. The first one is in the present tense. The second one is in the past tense. And the third is in the future tense. And so Paul gives us the retrospective and zooms out over his whole life. And in doing so, he shows us that we can prepare ourselves. First, we need to submit our present the present tense, the life that we're living now. This is what he says first in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul there is borrowing language from the sacrificial system. He says, my life is being poured out as a drink offering. The lamb that was sacrificed in the old covenant, the paschal lamb the part of the ceremony was to take a cup of wine and to pour it out onto the sacrifice. And so there's a double meaning here. Paul is saying, the cup of my life, it's being emptied out. I'm pouring out my life. My life is ending. I'm dying. But he's also saying this, my life in the present moment is a sacrifice. It is meant to be poured out. He said something similar, by the way, in Philippians chapter 2, where he tells the Philippians, I'm pouring myself out as a drink offering for the sake of your faith. So for Paul's perspective, he says, as long as I'm alive, I'm pouring myself out. 
And Paul did. He poured out a lot. He sacrificed a lot in his life. He gave up things, especially even after he became a Christian, especially after he became an apostle of Jesus Christ, after he was given a mission. Even some of his missional desires, some of his desires for the kingdom were not fulfilled. He had losses. For instance, Paul wanted to go to Spain. Who doesn't, right? Paul wanted to go to Spain, wanted to witness there. But he didn't ever make it. And as he's sitting in his prison cell, of course, he's thinking about the, his life. And he's looking back and he's saying, look, my life has basically been poured out for Christ. And that has meant some sacrifice. But as he says in Philippians chapter 3, whatever gain I had, I count it as a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. I can think about the things that I want for my life, but at the end of the day... Those get poured out to whatever God's purposes are for me. And the time of my departure has come. I love that word departure there. Of course, he means his death. But he doesn't say die. He says departure, which even in English implies there's another journey, right? There's something in the future. In fact, the word departure there is most often used of ships being launched. The departure, the launching of a ship, which of course immediately makes me think of the gray havens in the Lord of the Rings and the elves, these eternal beings, as they go to the gray havens, this shipyard, and they sail off to Valinor, which is the undying lands. And you think these elves, they're already, they're already immortal, but they need to go to a different place. They've been on Middle Earth for a reason, to help mankind restore order. And then they leave. Their work is done. They depart to the undying lands. And Paul knows that he's going to the undying lands. The time of his departure has come. He has been here for the sake of the church to live is Christ, but to die is gain, he says elsewhere. He has been there for our benefit so he could write the New Testament, so he could plant a lot of churches, so he could go on missionary journeys. But in the end, this is his departure. He submits his present tense to God's purposes. As long as I'm alive, my life is to be poured out. It's very comforting because if you believe in eternity, especially the eternity that the Scriptures promise us, which is a new heavens and a new earth, that God will restore everything that's broken and give us back everything that is good that has been lost. If you have that perspective, what it means is that you don't have to fit every experience into this one life. Do you see the freedom of that? To die well means that we pour ourselves out even if we don't get everything that we want on this side. Paul gave his life to the gospel. You know, Paul didn't have a wife, didn't have children. I'm not saying that you're called to that. He didn't go to Spain. There were, there were things that he wanted to do. 
or things that we often say are the markers of what a fulfilling life is that he did not have. Because he says, my life is an offering to be poured out. We aren't prepared for death until we see our lives as an offering. Something to be poured out. That these things that we've been given can be taken away. All of it can be taken away. Even our very life can be taken away as Paul's is. And still have fulfillment. Still fulfill our purposes. Because in the present tense, what life is for is pouring out. I love this passage from N.D. Wilson. If you're looking for a great book to kind of encourage you and uh, excite you again for your faith, I recommend Death by Living by N.D. Wilson. And he says this, Lay down, lay your life down. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breaths is draining away. You have hands, blister them while you can. You have bones, make them strain. They can carry nothing into the grave. I can be giving my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breaths to my wife and my children and my neighbors, where I can grasp after the vapor and the vanity for myself, dragging my feet, afraid to die and therefore afraid to live. And like Adam, I will still die in the end. Ars Moriendi, how to die well. It must begin in the present moment, seeing it. it's not something to be hoarded. It's something to be poured out, offered, submitting your presence. Secondly, submitting your past. Look with me at verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul interprets his past life, his life in fulfillment in summary as a battle that he has fought, a race that he has finished, and a treasure that he has kept or he has guarded his faith. He fought the spiritual and physical battle of planting churches. He fought that battle. The battle, we're told in Ephesians 6 by Paul himself, is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual rulers and authorities. But they often use things in this present world, they use flesh and blood to make it hard for us. And if you want to see how hard Paul's life was, read 2 Corinthians 11. See the summary of what has happened as he, in a sense, offers up what he has done for the kingdom. I'll give you a brief overview. He had many imprisonments. He had countless beatings. Five times he received the 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, one time stoned, three times shipwrecked, adrift at sea, in danger of rivers, robbers, Jews, Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, and at sea, sleepless nights, hunger, cold. And he says, on top of all that, I had the spiritual concern for the churches. Paul interpreted his life as a battle for the gospel, he fought, but he also finished. He interprets it as a race that has to be finished. Not one, by the way, though he uses that image in other places in the scriptures. Finishing the race, like Hebrews chapter 12, which tells us that all of us have a race that's marked out for us and to run it with endurance. Paul's race was a complicated and painful one that he now has endured to the end. And through that all, he kept the faith. 
None of those bad experiences caused him to lose his faith in Christ. And he did exactly what he has been telling Timothy in this book and the previous Timothy book to do. Guard the deposit that's been entrusted to you. Keep the faith. I have finished this race. I have fought the battle. And through that, perhaps one of the most amazing things is I did more than preserve the name of Christ in all these churches. I preserved it in myself. I kept the faith. So Paul, in retrospect, sees his unique life, all of it, as submitted to God's purposes. He interprets his life theologically. He looks back and he says, this is what God was doing. Even through that hard time, even through those beatings, even through all my concern for the churches, all of these things happened to me, but I have been called to fight this fight and to finish the race. And here's the amazing, comforting thing for all of us to hear. Who was Paul in his former life? He was a murderer. He was a persecutor of the church. And this persecutor of the church can still say, I finished the race. Showing us that it doesn't matter what our past is. It doesn't matter. All of what happened in the past can be part of the pre-story when you understand your life theologically, when you see that your life has been a series of things, of hard things, a battle to be fought, a race to be finished, things that test your endurance. But in the end, if you're with Christ, you finish well. Amazing comfort. Did you know that we have a battle to fight? The Scripture tells us that the enemy has fiery darts for each one of us. Tells us that we have a race marked out for us. It's not going to be the same as Paul's race. You're not necessarily called to plant all these churches and to do all these things, but you are called to follow him, and it will be a test of your endurance. But in the midst of that, you have a faith that needs to be guarded kept. And so to speak to those who are waving for just a moment, wavering, deconstructing, however you want to talk about it, Paul says here, he gives us this, this encouragement to keep the faith. And sometimes what I, what I want to challenge us on is sometimes we think because faith is hard for me, that that means I don't have faith. That's what we sometimes think. We think, I'm struggling to believe this in the Scripture. I'm struggling to see this in God's people. I'm struggling from a traumatic event or from a leader who hurt me. I'm struggling in my faith. And therefore we think, well, maybe I don't have faith. Paul says, don't interpret it that way. Don't see it that way. Don't you see the metaphors? It's a battle. It's a race. And so there's going to be seasons when you feel like you're beaten and you don't understand. And, and it's mile 10 and you've got 20 more to go. It feels like, how am I going to finish this race? Paul tells us to not interpret the hardship as a lack of faith, but simply to interpret it as the part of the battle or part of the race that is particularly hard right now. But in the end... 
You want the testimony that Paul had, which is that through those hard things, I kept my faith. I finished the race. Submitting your present, submitting your past. Third and finally, submitting your future to God's purposes. Part of dying well is knowing what's in front of us. Verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul is looking forward to an award, to a crown. What is this crown? Is Paul special? I do actually believe that there are degrees of reward in heaven. That's a discussion for another day. I think the Scriptures teaches that. However, that's not what this passage teaches. This is not a unique crown that Paul has. How do I know? A couple of reasons. First of all, he calls it the crown of righteousness, which we know Paul understood to be not of his own doing. The Lord is the only righteous one. There are none who are righteous, he tells us in uh, Romans. Not a single one. Paul did not believe that he had righteousness. So how can he receive the crown of righteousness? It has to come from the righteous judge. As he says in Philippians chapter 3, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Paul's righteousness did not come from himself, and so when he receives the crown of righteousness, it is not a crown of righteousness that he has earned. It is awarded to him. Paul didn't get the righteous crown because he was beat with the 39 lashes five times. He didn't get the crown of righteousness because he planted X number of churches or four missionary journeys or because he was abandoned at sea or because the name of Christ caused so much harm in his life. It was not because of any of those things. He, like all of us, needed an alien righteousness, a righteousness that was not his own, imputed to him, given to him by the, the righteous judge. And that is the only hope that any one of us have. The crown that awaits us in the future is only by the grace of God. For anyone who trusts in Christ, there is a righteous crown. Which is what Paul says, the second reason that we know it's not just Paul who gets this, is he tells us that explicitly. At the end of the verse 8, he says, not only to me, but to also to all who have loved his appearing. This is not a crown that's unlocked for Paul because he's an apostle or a church planter or highly effective or highly sacrificial. There is one criteria to receiving this crown. It is to love His appearing. Who's appearing? Christ's appearing. This is the return of Christ. This is Christ's second coming. What he's saying is this, the crown belongs to all those who look forward to Jesus being the future. That's the hope. And it's a question to us, what do you trust in to make this world better? 
What do you think would be best for the world? What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for a utopia? Are you waiting for the right political conditions or the right party to be in order, in, in power? Are you waiting for some massive overflow of human kindness that will change the world? What are you waiting for? Paul says, Christians, wait for the appearing of Christ. He is the future. We're waiting on Christ to make things right. And for all those who trust in that future, there is a crown. If you want to die well, according to Paul, you will submit that idea of the future and believe in that and trust in that. It's hard for us to go into passages like this and be reminded of our own mortality. We were on our way back from the sabbatical this summer. Um, three months I was away. We traveled 11,000 miles in those three months and um, without incident. We didn't have a car wreck or a car um, issue at all. And we were coming back into Phoenix at the end of our, our journey, and we were on the outskirts, somewhere out in Goodyear, coming in on the 10. And uh, we witnessed for the first time some kind of auto incident. There was a, a car that started flipping through the, the median. It was on the other side, going the other direction from us. And got off track and it started flipping and it flipped multiple times in the median and was able to slow down, pull off on the road, got out of the car and went to check on this car, which I thought for sure had killed the man who was inside. But as I got close, running back towards him, he got out of the car, he had a trickle of blood running down his head, but otherwise he was in shock, but he was amazingly, seemingly unharmed. And, uh, there was another person that pulled over and helped, and as they were there to help, and as the police started to arrive, I realized I didn't really have anything else to do, so I started walking back towards our truck so we could finish our journey. But what I noticed as I walked back, what I hadn't seen as I ran towards the car, was all the evidence of all the wrecks that had happened in that place. There was bumpers. <laughs> there were car mirrors. I saw a full car mirror. I saw glass everywhere. And it's, I realized, I mean, do they clean these things up? Like, there have been so many wrecks just in this one little stretch of a few, of a few hundred feet. And I realized I'd never even seen that before. I'd never seen all the carnage that's in a median. And as I was driving back, I realized there's a lot more here than I'm used to noticing once you start to see things, you see how inevitable it is when we have so many cars and so much traffic and so much things. It's inevitable that this is going to happen. Why don't we think about it more? That's something that happens to other people today in our minds. In the same way, as we think about death, it's not something that we dwell on. It's not something that we watch that much. But as we notice it, we begin to see, hey, this happens to everyone literally. It's everywhere. And if that's true, then what we ought to do is be prepared for that. We ought to know what it means to die well. Paul tells us in the present moment right now, we interpret our lives as a sacrifice right now. 
what it means to die well for us, to be prepared, is to see my life is not just a bunch of experiences that I haven't had yet. It is, in fact, an offering to be poured out for the name of Christ. That's where true life is. As we look back at our past and we think about the things we're ashamed of and we think about our own story and we think about the things that have happened that have hurt us and that we have used to hurt other people and all kinds of things that we interpret those things theologically. That's what God has done with my life. He has brought me to this point. What matters now is am I going to finish well? Am I going to interpret all that as his design, his battle, his race that he has marked out for me? And as I think about the future, am I going to trust in something other than Christ? Anything other than Christ will be a wasted hope. But if my trust is in Christ, then I know I will receive an award. And to have that knowledge means you are ready for death. It means you are ready for whatever life brings you. And you, like Paul, can finish well. Let's pray.